Let's pray. High King of glory, You truly will reign forever and ever. I pray that You would give us eyes of faith, that these eyes of flesh would be put aside and that we would have eyes of faith to see Your glory and to see Your beauty and to see the glory of Your Son. This can only happen by Your Spirit working through our hearts. God, as we encounter Your Word, I pray that we would be transformed from one degree of glory to the next. Amen. Growing up, one of the greatest joys I had was going across the street and milking cows with with the neighbors. My neighbor Bud, he would swing by and either come by in the four-wheeler or his International 1066, and I'd hop in the cab, we'd go bring in the cattle, and we'd line them up and milk the cows, and it'd be delightful. And every now and then, I'd miss him when he'd come by, and I'd go to my mom, like, I miss him. Yeah, yeah, you missed him, but don't worry. He'll be back. Sure enough, without fail, the promise of a, of a mother and and the faithfulness of a good, godly neighbor. In due time, he came back. And he'd pick me up, and we'd go riding off into this promised land of manure and cattle stanchions and haylofts. And it was glorious, and it was wonderful. I miss it. That's the same thing we have here in our text. It's Palm Sunday, and as you know, in our infinite wisdom and all of our planning, we missed it by four weeks. We had, we've been in Matthew for over a year, and we missed it by four weeks. Thankfully, thankfully, there's another triumphal entry in our scripture. And Christ is again coming in, and again, He is going to execute judgment when we saw it. In the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, he's coming and he's going to execute judgment in the temple and he clears the temple, we see in Matthew. But now he's coming. It's going to be a little bit different. He's executing judgment, but he's executing judgment in his dominion over all of his enemies and over all of his creation. He is establishing himself as King of kings and Lord of lords. That's a pretty good entry. And that's the main idea we're going to be coming under here. And what I hope you see is that this Jesus, this King of Kings, the one who has come will come again. The one who has come will come again. And we see it in this in this first part here, verses 11 through 13. Well, what do we do then? You bow. You prostrate yourself before the King. Bow before the King. And then finally in verses 14 through 16, what do we do? We tremble. We joyfully tremble in fear before the coming King. The King who has come will come again. So what do we do? We bow before the coming King and we joyfully fear. Joyfully fear the coming King. But before we 
dive headlong into this text, which is right at the end of our Bibles. Go back to the beginning, several pages in, past the weights and the guides and the preference and everything else. And you see in the beginning, this you have this idea of kingship and dominion given right in the garden, right with Adam and Eve, don't you? God, he, he placed them in the garden. God blessed them and He said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves upon the ground. And here you have this idea of dominion. But they didn't exercise dominion, did they? They didn't even exercise dominion over themselves. Because you, you go to the next page right there and it says, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took and ate. And then she gave some to her husband, who is a derelict, but standing there with her, and he ate it. The first king, absolute failure. God creates all of this creation, and He is to subdue it and to display the dominion of God. That's what He's to do. That's why it's a tragedy that He failed. We have God as the true King. God is the one who has dominion. And Adam and Eve were supposed to image that over God's creation, and they utterly failed. They chose rather themselves. Go to the next page. Cain and Abel. After that, you see this, at the end of chapter 4, you see this Lemek coming along. Adam and Eve are married and, and given to each other in marriage. Given to each other by God within marriage. But what do you see with Lemek? What does it say? In the Hebrew, he, he conquers, he, he, he takes for himself, not one wife, but two wives. So you have dominion, not over the God's creation, but now dominion over someone else, your spouse. Not good. And then he goes on and he brags and he says, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me down. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, remember that Cain killed Abel and then God says, well, don't worry, if anyone kills you, they will receive sevenfold the judgment upon them. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Demlemics is seventy-sevenfold. And so here, Adam and Eve were derelict in their dominion, displaying the kingship of God. And now Lamech is coming along, and it's spiraling down very quickly, getting even worse. And he's saying, well, not only am I going to be a derelict of what God tells us to do, I'm going to actually have my own set of justice. Now, it's not going to be God's justice, it's going to be far greater than the justice of God and the dominion of God. And the tale continues, and you fast forward through the flood, and then you have Abraham, and Abraham has Isaac, Isaac, he has Jacob, Jacob, he has Judah, and all of his kin. And they go down to Egypt, slaves for 400 years. Moses brings them out miraculously. They conquer the land, they live in the land for 300 years, 300 years under judges. But they know, and they want a king. They long for a king. And what are they rejecting? They're rejecting God when they demand a king in the flesh, when they had a king in the word. And they rejected God. Samuel writes, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, his hometown there. And they said to him, Behold, 
Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of all the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you. They have rejected me from being king over them. So God is no longer enough for the people of God. They want someone else to rule over them. And they get Saul. Eventually Saul rejects God, and in due time God rejects Saul as well. But then there's this this flicker of hope. You have David rising, and he's known as, as a man after God's own heart. But eventually David... He does good, great, kingly things. He kills a lot of bad guys. The Philistines are disposed of. But he takes for himself several wives. And eventually, this man who is has a heart after God falls prey to adultery with Uriah's wife. Go to Matthew 1. They don't even mention her by name. Uriah's wife. And she soon becomes dead, Uriah's wife. As he kills Uriah. And unless you think, as an aside, unless you think that you will never do that, that all of that is something you can never do, you will never be accused of by the word of God as being someone purely after the heart of God. If David can fall prey to this, if David can fall prey to that, so, so can you. And so we, we see these kings, this idea of dominion in the garden, and with Lemek it becomes tarnished and ruined from this godly king that we are supposed to emulate. And then David comes along, and then the kingdom is split, and in the northern kingdom, they have 19 kings in the northern kingdom. Do you know how many are godly? Zero. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of God's people, God's people living under the dominion of people who led them into idolatry. In the southern kingdom, it wasn't much better. They had 23 kings, and there were six of them. Six of them, including David. Six godly men out of hundreds and hundreds of years. David, Asa, Jehoshaphat, Isaiah, Jotham, Hezekiah and Josiah. That's it. That's it. But what else did they have? Well, they had men like Rehoboam. He was the son of Solomon, the grandson of King David, the one who had the heart after God. Just his grandson and the chronicler. How did he sum up his life? Well, he did evil. That was the sum of his life. He did evil. This king, he did evil, but he did not set his heart to seek after the Lord. After him, several centuries later, you get Manasseh, and what did Manasseh do? He took his own sons. And you go to the southern part of Jerusalem, and the valleys come together, and they would their sacrifice to idols. The king of God's people brought his own sons down and sacrificed them to Molech, pagan idol. Not only that, you have King Ahaz. And he what did he do? He plundered the temple and of all of its gold and sent it off to the Assyrians so the Assyrians wouldn't attack. Rather than praying 
that God would deliver them, as he had done in the past. And then not only that, he strips the temple of all of its gold, but then he imports gods from Damascus and sets up a little another temple by the temple of God so people can worship the gods of Damascus rather than the god of Yahweh. Unless there be too much competition, eventually he closes the temple so that people will only go to this pagan temple. That is what you have in the kings and the people are longing for someone to come. Someone who would display this godly dominion and defeat his enemies and care for his people. And with all of that in mind, let us read of the good king, the pure king, the righteous king who comes. Let's go back and read verses 11 through 13. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but only himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. This is truly the second, as we mentioned, the second triumphal entry. And when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, and He he sends Him the first time humble and low and meek. He was born of a virgin, born in a stable. He, He conquers... He says, we're having the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and he gathers people to follow him, and what does he have? Well, he has, can't even keep them all. He has 11 at the end. And this first triumphal entry is, again, low and meek. It's on a foal, the colt of, of a donkey, low and meek. Now, how does this contrast to what he's coming in? This foal now becomes what? A white horse, does it not? And this beast of burden is now becoming this quintessential image of conquering and of dominion coming forth. And the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. He's faithful in that he will always do what is promised. The promises of God will come forth either to your judgment or to your glory where you see God face to face. You see, in Hebrews 10, the author writes, Let us hold faith fast to the confession of our hope without faith, without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. But he's not only faithful, he's, he's true in that he is genuine in every respect. So when they would say, is this gold in the ancient times? And they would say, yes. Just as we do now, it's true gold. It's 100% pure. There is no, no impurities in it whatsoever. So here is Christ. He is faithful to do what He says. And He is true. And that there is no deviation. There is no impurities in Him whatsoever. And these, He has upon Himself the attributes of God. He is faithful because God is faithful. He is true because God is true. And He is these. Why? Because Jesus is God, my friend. There's no other way He can display these pure attributes of God unless He Himself is God. 
So now Christ comes and he displays his full righteousness as he would on, on the Mount of Transfiguration. You just see a glimmer of it there and then it's gone. But now you see it will come again. He's riding on his white horse and he's called faithful and true. And what does he do? In righteousness, it says in verse 11. In righteousness, he judges and he makes war. And it's actually common to, uh, to judge and to make war. That's really common. Read the ancient, all of the ancient histories. Herodotus, one of the first historians, what is he right? He writes about the Greeks and the non-Greeks and how they fight. And eventually how the Greeks conquer the Persians. You read uh, Xenophon, there's rise of uh, Anabasis of Cyrus. It's about war. Read Josephus. What? It's about war. Read them all. It's all about war. Big deal. You come and you judge and you make war. But Christ comes and what does he do? He's judging and he's making war. But he's not doing it as bloodthirsty men do. To set up their own kingdom for their own glory. No. He's coming and he's doing it in righteousness. He's doing it according to the standards of God. It only makes sense that this eternal kingdom of God would be set upon the eternal standards of God. And thus he comes in his righteousness. And soon, and very soon, we, my friend, will see this full righteousness of God. No longer in in this word, but with our eyes. But until then, we will live by faith. So he's, he's come and is, he's called faithful and true. And he's coming and his, his eyes are like the flames of a sword or flames of fire. And, and his head is adorned with these diadems and his robe. You notice his robe, it's dipped, it's dipped in blood. It's a picture of, of God's justice and his judgment that is coming. With this in mind, with the the robe dipped in blood, think of Isaiah 63. It it starts off with saying, well, who is this that comes from Edom? It's it's God's judgment upon those from Eden. In verse 2 it says, why is your apparel red and your garments like he who treads the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all of my apparel. For the day of the vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. Down to verse 6. I had trampled down the people in my wrath and made them drunk in my wrath. And I poured out them all of their lifeblood upon the earth. What do you see? In Isaiah 63, you see this garments covered in blood. But what is it? It's the blood of God's enemies as He is bringing justice upon them. But what do we see here in our text? Has the battle yet begun? No. The battle has, has not yet begun. Well, whose blood is this? It's his own. It's his own blood. It's the sacrifice of his own son by which he will destroy all of his enemies and bring the righteous people into his fold. 
He's done all of that by his own sacrifice, my friend. The battle has not yet begun and he's covered in blood. Think about it. Where else have you seen him with a robe covered in blood? The imagery should be popping out in your head. There you see him as the king enthroned upon the cross. Being mocked, being ridiculed, being spat upon. That's how he redeems his people. By his own sacrifice. And we say all of this is, is soon and it's happening very soon and that's intentional. It's not to be alarmist, it's just intentional because quite frankly it's it's true. Because all of this is just it's just a moment away. That's it. It's just a moment away. It could come it could come at any time. So what do we do? So what do you do? You come and you you bow down and you get low before the king who is to come. And you do it now, my friend. You do it now. Have it in your heart, as, as John the Baptist said, where you say, I must decrease and he must increase. There you see your, your Messiah who has gone before you, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but what? He emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being found in human form, likeness. What did he do? He humbled himself to the point of death, and not only that, but death upon the cross. That is what is held before us, my friend. So you want to be great in the kingdom of God. Good. Pick up a mop. Remember, in this upside-down kingdom where the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Remember? And you see in Matthew 20, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever be first among you must be a slave. Be, be more like Joe and Tess and Kyleen and Mike showing up when no one sees them, 8 a.m., an hour and a half before anything else starts. Set up chairs. God delights in that. Humble yourself. Bow down before the king. God, preachers, you should know, we're a dime a dozen. God is far more delighted with moms with their carriers bouncing Sophie in the back. God is far more delighted with that than he is with the one up front. Humble yourself and bow down before the Almighty King. There's nothing nothing else to be done. For you're reminded that this coming King, the one who has come, is, is coming again. And he's not like the, the former kings or the old monarchs who sought to spread their own glory like a flame that would flicker and then be soon be snuffed out. No. You know that the Son of God, this Word of God, the One who reveals Himself, that's why He has a name that isn't hidden, but it's in the Word of God. He reveals it. We don't know it unless it's revealed. He is coming. 
And he will come in righteousness to judge and to make war. But what, well, what does that look like? Okay, well, let's go back to the text. What does it mean to judge and make war in righteousness? Verse 14. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Here's Christ coming. And there's cosmic battle, and you see that it it doesn't last long. He's arrayed himself with this, this host of heaven. It doesn't last long, my friend, because the judgment has already been spoken. The same one written Revelation here, that also wrote the Gospel of John in chapter 12, he writes, Jesus' words, The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken, the word that I have spoken, will judge him on the last day. And this is the sword coming out of his mouth to bring judgment upon those who do not disobey. And he will rule over them with, with a rod of iron. And, and how about this for imagery? The enemies of God will be as if they were placed in a wine press. And as the one would come along and trample the grapes, and out comes the juice, and out flowing out of the grapes, and flowing out of the wine press, so it will be with the enemies of God. As Judgment comes forth upon his people. Because he is the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords. And you, if you look at this, it's not the subjunctive mood. It's not, and he might rule over them and he might tread them. No, no, no. He will rule over them. He will tread over them. And with winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. This will happen, my friend. That's what him. I'm pleading with you. I'm pleading with you, my friend. Do you not see that all of this is coming? And soon, very, it could be a moment away. The wrath of God will be poured upon His enemies. And if you are not in Christ, if you are not in Christ, you should be trembling and trembling in fear. You can, you can hardly gather yourself to get out of bed in the morning. And what are you going to do? You're going to stand against the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. Please. Come on. Let's not think so highly of yourself. To whom will you turn on this day? If, if you're not in Christ, to whom will you turn? There is no one who can save you. In that day, there is no one who can save you. But in this day, in this day, there is one who can save you. And the very, it's the same one who is coming to execute the judgment of God upon his enemies. It's the same one, Christ, the same one upon whom the wrath of God was poured out. So that we 
who are in Christ while we were enemies of God. Christ took the wrath that we should be absorbing and drinking on this last day. Christ took it while He was upon the cross. So that we, while we were enemies with God, we might become sons with God and daughters of God and fellow heirs with Christ. That's a glorious and that is a beautiful, beautiful thing. So that as Christians, we reread this text of the one coming in Revelation 19. We read this and we tremble and we tremble in fear. But as Christians, we, we joyfully tremble in fear. For we long for this day to come. We long for true righteousness to be revealed in all of the land. This is what we long for, my friend. So let me, as we close, read portions of Psalm 45, which is about the warrior bridegroom who is to come. And you'll see its, its true fulfillment here. Gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. Verse 4. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach your awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the hearts of king's enemies. The people fall under you. Your throne of God is forever and ever. Here's Christ. Christ is the bridegroom coming forth. Your throne of God is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of righteousness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Here is the bridegroom, the warrior coming forth. Down to verse 13. It says, And all glorious, all glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with glory. Who is the bride? You. The church. If you are in Christ, this is you. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes and are woven with glory and many colored robes. She has led you the king. Her virgin companions follow behind her with joy and gladness. They are led along as they enter the palace of the king. This is why we long for Christ to come again. With all joy and gladness they are led along and they enter into the palace of the king. In the palace of your father shall be your sons who will make them princes, fellow heirs with Christ. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. Amen. My friends, repent. Repent of your sins while they are still time. While there is time, my friends, repent. For the king who has come is coming again, and he will not come on the donkey. He won't overturn tables and make people upset. No, he's going to come on a white horse. And in justice and righteousness, he will judge and make wars. He'll be called faithful and true. And he will tread upon the enemies of God as in a wine. So do not drink the wrath of God in that day. Do not, I'm pleading with you, do not drink the wrath of God in that day. Rather, turn to Christ now and find rest in Him and Him alone.
Let us pray. Gracious, almighty Father, we thank you for your words of truth, that we are not led astray, but that we know and we behold the way, and we can delight in your King, your Son, who is coming to establish his throne, and his nations will praise you forever and ever. Glorious God, we, we long for that day. We pray that it would come. Come, Lord Jesus. That it would come soon. But until then, God, I pray that you would hold us. That we could walk by faith. Until that day, then when we walk by sight. Amen.